following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch Jesus, to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. On April 20th, 1938, all pastors in Germany received an order. Quote, anyone who is called to a spiritual office, a spiritual office, is to affirm his loyal duty with the following oath. I swear that I will be faithful and obedient to Adolf Hitler the Fuhrer of the German Reich and people, so help me, God. Perhaps even more tragic than this oath was Hitler's own experience with Christian pastors, which had informed his perception. You can do anything you want with them, he once said. They will submit. They are insignificant little people, submissive as dogs, and they sweat with embarrassment when you talk to them. I wish I could say he was wrong, But the reality is that those who did resist the confessing church, brave men and women like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who refused to trade the cross for a swastika, they were in the vast minority. The mass compromise of Christians in Nazi Germany is not ancient history. We're talking 80 years ago. It's just one modern example of a historical pattern. Giving allegiance to the state that ought to be reserved for God. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. This morning, we come to one of Jesus' most well-known statements. I actually don't think it's well understood, but it's certainly well-known. And without exaggeration, we can say that its influence over the centuries has been incalculable. It is arguably the most influential political statement in the history of the world. But before we look at it, we we have to first understand the context. It's Tuesday in the life of Jesus in his final week. Two days ago on Sunday, he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. Yesterday, Monday, he he went into the temple courts and exposed the circus of corruption he found, flipping tables, driving out money changers, symbolically cleansing God's house and condemning his wayward people. This morning, Tuesday, Israel's religious leaders had tried to trap him and discredit him in front of the people, but instead they were the ones left speechless. After hearing his impromptu parable about wicked vineyard tenants who dishonor the owner by beating the servants he sends and then finally killing his beloved son. The meaning of 
that story was not lost on the religious leaders. They knew Jesus had aimed it like a heat-seeking missile against them. Which brings us to the famous scene. Here's what I think is the main idea of Mark 12, 13 to 17. The, the main idea of the passage, which if I'm doing this preaching thing correctly, will be the main idea of this message. Governing leaders deserve honor, but only God deserves worship. It's that simple. There's a lot more that can be said. Uh, scores and hundreds of tomes of political theology have been written in light of this brief interaction in Mark 12. But at bottom, fundamentally, I think the main idea is that governing leaders deserve honor, but only God deserves worship. We'll think about this in two simple points as we make our way through this scene. First, a loaded question. We'll see that in verses 13 and 14. And second, a stunning response. We'll see that from the end of verse 14 to verse 17. A loaded question and a stunning response. First, a loaded question. Verse 13. Mark 12, 13. Later they, that's the chief priests, teachers of the law, elders, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So this means that the bigger group, the Sanhedrin, they've given up. They've tried to outwit this guy, but it keeps boomeranging back on their own head. So now they're like, all right, let's now try a different tactic. Let's now dispatch a smaller task force of Pharisees and Herodians to try to do the job. See if they have better luck. We read things like this, details like this, and don't even blink, but this would have been a shocking thing to hear or to read for those in the first century. These two groups did not hang out. The Pharisees were a religious group, the Herodians a political group. The Pharisees were mostly Jewish nationalists, the Herodians Jewish collaborators supporters of Herod's dynasty, and by extension, supporters of Roman rule. These two groups have opposite views, opposite values, but one common enemy. As they say, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this alliance, though it is unlikely, though it would have been offensive to many to even imagine, this alliance is actually not new Way back in chapter 3, after Jesus dared, dared to heal a disabled person on the Sabbath, we read in Mark 3, 6, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Same two groups from chapter 3, but here in chapter 12, they're closer to one another than ever because they're beginning to smell blood. Verse 14, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. 
This verse is funny. It's, it's kind of like how my kids come to me and talk to me when they want ice cream. Father, we know you're a man of integrity. You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, these guys slink up to Jesus with this kind of fawning approach. Maybe they're trying to disarm him, to convince him that unlike the others who had tried and failed, that they mean well. But it's just pure flattery. Just pure flattery. I mean, what is flattery? Well, contrast it with gossip. If, if gossip is uh, saying behind someone's back what you would never say to their face, flattery is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. And that's what these guys are doing. But they're actually speaking better than they know. They're right, actually. They are correct that Jesus isn't swayed by people's opinions, but teaches the true way of God. The irony is that they are enslaved by people's opinions and merely teach the way of man. But even though they're laying it on thick, flattering him, they're actually just insulting him because while they're talking to him, looking at him, addressing him as what? Teacher. Oh, revered teacher. They have no interest in actually accepting his teaching. There's a warning embedded here, isn't there? You don't have to really believe in Jesus in order to be able to say some true things and even act like you're honoring God. Friend, is this how you view Jesus as a great teacher? Someone you respect? Maybe someone from history you revere? One who even you would admit teaches the way of God in accordance with the truth? If so, that's good, but not sufficient. The whole purpose of Jesus coming to earth was to say, I don't just teach the way of God, I am the way of God, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you respect Jesus, revere Jesus as a teacher, but you have still not bowed to him as your Lord, then no matter how religious you may be, how moral you may be, then you do not yet know him. You are not yet on his side. You do not yet have your sins forgiven. Well, after they run out of flattery, the Pharisees and Herodians pose the question. So here's what they've come to him to ask. End of verse 14. Jesus, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? And then they add, verse 15, should we pay or shouldn't we? They just want a straight to the point, yes or no. And Jesus is going to answer. He's not going to evade it, but he's going to give them more than they bargained for. This imperial tax, sometimes called a poll tax or a head tax, was a yearly tribute that you paid essentially for the privilege of getting to live under Roman rule. So you can imagine why it was a live controversy among a minority, subjected people like the Jews. The tax itself wasn't exorbitant, wasn't much money, but it symbolized everything the Jews abhorred. It wasn't just distasteful to them, it felt offensive. They were paying for their own oppression. 
It was this in-your-face reminder to the Jews, this in-your-face reminder that you're still subjugated under pagans in the land of promise. You're still far, far removed from the promises of God. So the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they know this. And so they seize on the sensitivity of the issue and the crackling tension in the air by posing this loaded question. So what say you, Rabbi? Are you fine with this Roman tax? Which means you're a collaborator? Or are you not fine with it? Which means you're a revolutionary. Do you see the trap? If he answers, yes, pay it, He'll lose the people, the crowds who are longing for a political Messiah. The Pharisees will just look at all the crowds who've been duped. If Jesus says, yes, pay that Roman pagan tax, the Pharisees will just look over at the crowds and say, see? But if he says, no, don't pay it, then he'll out himself as an insurrectionist and the Herodians will just go to their Roman rulers and say, see? Want to do anything about that sedition? What are you, Jesus? Are you a coward or a rebel? Of course, they don't really care how he answers because they framed it in such a way that he's either going to lose his popularity or his life. By the way, there's a simple lesson here for Christ's followers. Allegiance to him, allegiance to Jesus will sometimes mean that we are politically misunderstood, maybe even feel politically homeless. The heated debate back in this first century context was, can you give allegiance to Yahweh, the God of Israel? Can you do that, give allegiance to the one true and living God and pay taxes to a pagan king? Or are those two things mutually exclusive? Most of the onlookers probably assumed that Jesus, this courageous rabbi, would have said what? No, don't pay it. That he was going to, when forced, when cornered, he was going to finally come out against the government. After all, he had a track record of doing his own thing. That's what most people probably expected him to say. Christian, don't be surprised if people assume they know exactly what you are going to say, that they have you politically pegged. They know exactly what you think about every issue and how you would respond in every scenario. The Pharisees and the Herodians assumed Jesus was a bad Roman, or Jesus was a bad citizen in the Roman Empire, and they wanted to out him for it. And it's absolutely true. Don't get me wrong. It's absolutely true that sometimes allegiance to Jesus will make you a dissident if you're faithful to Jesus. But don't be surprised either if you're misunderstood. So was your Savior. Now at this point, I imagine the, the Pharisees have asked him their question. They have him cornered. And I imagine that they're kind of trading glances with a satisfied smile. Good luck this time, Jesus. A loaded question. Point number two, a stunning response. 
a stunning response, middle of verse 15. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Just pause there. This is not the first time that word trap, the, word, the Greek word for trap, has shown up in Mark's gospel. The first time we encountered it was back in chapter 1, when the devil was trying to trap Jesus in the wilderness and convince him to sin. That tells you something about their motives here. Jesus sees through all of the flattery to their hypocrisy and even to the demonic activity going on as they're trying to bring him down. Bring me a denarius, Jesus says, and let me look at it. Bring me a denarius, let me look at it. Verse 16, they brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. It's verse 16. Caesar's, they replied. This ancient coin, the, the, the denarius, uh, we know what it looks like. It can be found in museums. This is what everyone would have saw that day as Jesus held it up. On one side, the coin read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the God. Augustus. And on the other side, it simply read, Pontiff Maxim, High Priest. So these silver coins weren't just Roman currency. They were communicating Roman ideology. They were a religious reminder, a religious reminder of who was the real king and son of God and high priest. As one person put it, the denarius was like a little portable idol promoting pagan worship everywhere it went. So again, you can imagine the tension in the air as the Pharisees just stare Jesus down. They're just glaring at him, daring him to say, yes, pay the tax, it's no big deal. So whose name and likeness is on the coin, Jesus asks. That's his question. Let's look at this coin together. Whose name and likeness is on it? Caesar's, they say. Verse 17, then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. In one brief sentences, I mean, this is one of the most masterful, brilliant things Jesus ever said. In one brief sentence, he manages to simultaneously legitimize and limit the authority of governing rulers. Let's just think about both halves of this explosive statement. First, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, yes, pay the tax. There's my answer. I'm not advocating sedition. It's Caesar's money anyway. He printed the coins. Return to him what's his. And on a deeper level here, in saying, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus is acknowledging, he's affirming the legitimacy of government and even more controversially of even wicked rulers. He doesn't say, well, Herod's a really bad guy, or I'm sorry, uh, Caesar is a really bad guy, so act like he doesn't exist. He doesn't say, wait until he bows his knee to me before you obey him. 
Sure, once Tiberius Caesar recognizes me as the true king and son of God and high priest, then you're welcome to use his money. That's not the logic at all. Jesus is also saying, there's a sense in which he's saying, you should pay your taxes not just because Caesar printed your money, and, what, and the implication here would have been distasteful to Jews, but Jesus is also saying, hey, there are some benefits to living in the Roman Empire. You're benefiting in certain ways. Roads, law, education, postal service, military protection. There are benefits to living in the Roman Empire. And those, here's the principle, those who accept the privilege of, privileges of the state must fulfill the just demands of the state. Now, the implications of this are kind of endless, and there are all kinds of exceptions we could get into. But at bottom, Jesus is affirming that his followers should be, whenever possible, good citizens. Even the best of citizens. This is the New Testament's consistent refrain. Listen to the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter 2.17, honor the emperor. He doesn't say honor your pastor in that verse. He doesn't say honor your father and mother. He says honor a pagan. Honor the emperor. The Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 2, which our brother Carl will reflect on tonight. I urge that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and those, all those in authority, that we might live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. By the way, this is why in our morning service, we often pray for people in positions of authority, including political leaders. We're not standing up here endorsing a particular individual or a party. We're simply honoring the office and obeying the Bible by praying for them in part so it'll go well for us. That's the logic we'll think about more tonight from 1 Timothy too. Brothers and sisters, one of the implications of, of our Lord's statement here in Mark 12, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, is that we should be the best possible citizens we can. As I said, the best possible citizens we can. Yes, our spiritual passport reads one thing, citizen of heaven. But in reality, we have several citizenships. We're we're citizens of our counties, the Commonwealth of Virginia and the United States. All these will expire. Yes, they'll expire. That's what it means to be an eternal being headed for our ultimate home, a citizen of heaven. But just because those earthly citizenships will inspire does not mean they are illegitimate. It doesn't discount that God has placed us here under our earthly rulers for our good and his purposes let's go a little deeper on this. How is it that being a citizen of heaven should make you a better citizen on earth? Because that's my claim in light of Mark 12. What's the logic there? I mean, that might seem a little counterintuitive. How is it that focusing on your heavenly citizenship, being heavenly minded, will make you of more earthly good, will make you the best kind of citizen here on earth? How would you answer that question? Well, here's my answer. If all you have to look forward to is in this world, 
if this world is all you have, then politics is inevitably, inevitably going to take on a kind of inflated, outsized significance it wasn't meant to bear. Just think about it. If all your hope and all your heart is invested in political outcomes in the here and now, then you're not going to be able to hold loosely to any of your positions. You're not going to be able to view your neighbors who vote differently than you with any measure of charity. All you're going to be able to do is fear them and loathe them, which will tempt you to morally compromise in order to defeat them. If you want to know what you idolize, if you want to know what you idolize, begin by looking at who you demonize. And if this world, if this life is all there is, then given those ultimate existential stakes, you will have no choice but to look down on and then to start to despise and then demonize those with whom you disagree. But what happens when a Christian is buoyant? Not because everything around them is going well, not because everything transpiring politically is encouraging to them, but when a Christian has a a bit of a bounce in their step, a hopeful demeanor, because they are taking not just a four-year view, they're taking a 4,000-year view, a 4,000,000-year view of how things are going to be, how things are going to be. What happens when a Christian is confident that their ultimate citizenship and hope is secure in heaven, here's what happens. It frees you to actually be the kind of neighbor your neighbors need. It frees you to be the best neighbor, the best citizen, because you know your battle isn't finally against them. It's not finally against flesh and blood. You can appreciate God's common grace, even in unbelievers. You can work toward the common good without the crushing burden of thinking this life is all there is. If you saw a a child standing outside and just squeezing a rock. <laughs> you, and, and you asked, what are you doing? And, and they were like, I'm, I'm trying to get the water out. You'd say, oh, that, that rock doesn't have any water to give. You're not going to find what you're looking for. That's what it's like to try to derive peace and hope from political outcomes. You can listen to talk radio all day, watch cable news all night. You can squeeze and squeeze and squeeze the rock, but it's not going to yield any of the security or peace you're looking for. None of this is to say politics doesn't matter. Some Christians throughout history have made that mistake. We should be engaged in the political process, especially in a democratic republic. We should pray that genuine Christians run for political office and serve us well. We should pray that liberty and justice, which many of us have long enjoyed in our country, that those virtues would endure. We we should work to these ends, but we should do it all with tempered expectation tempered, chastened expectation because we live in a broken world. And friends, this is not our home. We should adjust our, accor- our expectations accordingly. Second Peter 3.13, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness 
dwells. It's okay to follow the twists and turns of the political process and uh, campaign season is starting and there are primary debates and things are going to pick up uh, for the next year plus. But remember, verses like 2 Peter 3.13, promises like this. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Not we're looking forward to a new president or a new administration or a new Supreme Court judge, but to a new world governed by the only ruler who will never let us down. Friends, political action is important. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying it isn't. Political action is important, which means you should vote. But political action is not ultimate which means you can rest. The second part of Jesus' famous statement is this. Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give back to God what is God's. This is why I love getting to preach the Bible because of getting to show what Jesus is saying here. Have you ever thought about what Jesus is saying what's kind of hidden, not so subtly between the lines. He's saying, by saying, give to God what is God's, he's saying, sure, give to Caesar what bears his name and image, his coins. But give to God what bears his name and image, your very selves. Isn't Jesus brilliant? Again, in one breath, he affirms affirms Caesar's right to collect taxes and denies Caesar's right to collect worship. It's not that God and Caesar, just to be clear, are in any way on the same level. No, God is Caesar's Lord, whether he recognizes it or not. As Jesus will say to Pontius Pilate, in less than three days, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Among other things, Mark 12 is teaching that political leaders have real authority, real authority, legitimate authority, but just not ultimate authority. I'm I'm reminded of a story which I think I've shared before about an old Scottish preacher uh, in the 16th century King James of Scotland and England. One commentator recounts the scene, this true story. King James was notoriously rude when attending worship services. On one occasion, he was seated in his gallery with several attendants while Robert Bruce preached. In his usual form, James began to talk to those around him during the sermon. Bruce paused. The king fell silent. The minister resumed, and so did James. Bruce ceased speaking a second time. Same result. When the king committed his third offense, Bruce turned and addressed him directly. It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, all the beasts of the field are quiet. The lion of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel, and it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. Jesus answers their loaded question about taxes with the ultimate yes but, the greatest yes but in human history. Yes 
pay the tax, but don't forget your deepest obligation. Yes, be a good citizen, but don't assume and live as if this world is all there is. Yes, give Caesar your honor, but don't you dare give him your heart. One other application here is that while our default posture should be to obey governing leaders whenever possible, we should never violate our conscience if they're asking us to sin. This could be a whole separate talk. I I won't belabor the point, but I just want to show you this principle among the earliest Christians from Acts chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Acts 5, starting in verse 27. The apostles were brought in to the authorities, uh, brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Acts 5, 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in the name of Jesus, he said. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than man. Jesus Christ has tie-breaking authority. And speaking of his authority, one of the marks of Christian maturity, one of the marks of Christian maturity is coming to realize that the most important political statement you will make every week is gathering with your church for worship on Sunday. Corporate worship to the one true and living God is the most important ballot you cast every week. In fact, we could go so far as to say that if you are a believer, you are already part of a Christian nation. It's not called America. It's called the church. Invest, therefore, invest your best energy there. If you're a member of RCBC, invest it here. Patriotism is a good thing, but at church we pledge allegiance to the King of kings and Lord of lords who is gathering a multinational people around himself for the fame of his name. Nations come and go, but only to his church has King Jesus promised ultimate success, even against the gates of hell. As Mark Dever has said, a pastor in Washington, D.C., before and after America, there was and will be the church. America is an experiment. The church is a certainty. End of verse 17. And they, the Pharisees and Herodians, were amazed at him. He's confounded them again. And this time they can't help but say, you're pretty impressive. It doesn't say they picked up stones. It says they they marveled. They were pretty amazed at how he got out of this toughest of corners. And yet in 72 hours, they and people like them will be screaming for him to be crucified. Friend, it is not enough to be amazed at Jesus. As we saw earlier, it's not enough to just come up to him and, re- and address him respectfully. Oh, Jesus, I'm grateful for your teaching. I think uh, I, I, I appreciate the Sermon on the Mount. I uh, uh, affirm that the church has done some good things throughout human history. It's not enough even to be wowed by his teaching, though. See, at the beginning of the passage, we saw it's not enough to just call him a teacher revere him as a teacher. But here, it's not even enough to be wowed by his teaching because these people are wowed. 
The most important thing you could hear in this sermon, friend, if you're not yet following Jesus, is that he did not come to earth just to be a teacher or a philosopher or a debater or an example, but a liberator from sin and death. That's the most politically subversive, politically explosive message you could possibly hear this morning. That 2,000 years ago, God, the kingdom of God, made a personal appearance on earth in Jesus Christ and that he lived the life of perfection, perfect obedience to God his Father that we have all failed to live and he went to the cross and suffered and died in our place for our sins bearing the punishment that we deserved so that if we put our trust and faith and confidence in him, not in an election, but in him, the enthroned Lord of all, that we can have confidence that one day we will rise right along with him and reign as kings and queens in a new world under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Well, in conclusion, As I said at the beginning, uh, one pastor has called this statement, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, the single most influential political statement in the history of the world. And I hope you have started to see why. The Pharisees and Herodians crowded around Jesus, wanting to know one thing. One thing. Hey, Rabbi, are you really a revolutionary? To which he answers, not just here, but in the coming days. Oh yes, but it's not a kind of revolution that you can yet imagine. And it's not a revolution you're going to be able to stop. Because even if you put my corpse in a grave, I'm going to find a way out on the other side. Last year I had the chance to travel to Turkey and visit visit ancient Smyrna. If Smyrna rings a bell, it's because it's one of the churches to whom Jesus writes a letter in in Revelation chapter 2. And way back in the second century, in Smyrna, there was an old bishop in that city named Polycarp. Uh, Church tradition holds that he was personally discipled by the apostle John. So Polycarp is the bishop of Smyrna. One day a pagan mob had gathered to demand his life. And by the way, I realize this is my third historical illustration. I'm not apologizing for that. I love all three of them. Uh, One day this pagan mob gathered to demand his life. Kill the leader and his church will wither and die. That was their reasoning. If we get Polycarp, then the whole thing is over. When he was finally hauled in before the mad crowd, the governor declared to Polycarp that he could live. The governor said, I will let you live. I've not necessarily brought you here to kill you. I will let you live if you'll just do one thing for me. If you'll just deny Jesus. If you'll just tell me two words. Kaiser Curios. It's very simple. Just say, Kaiser Curios. Caesar is Lord and you'll be free. The old man replied, 86 years I have served him, and he has never done me wrong. How then can I now blaspheme my king and savior? Polycarp knew something that those German pastors 80 years ago did not. Political leaders are worthy of our honor, but only King Jesus is worthy of our lives.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess to you that we are so often more emotionally charged by what's playing out in front of us on the television screen, on the internet, with political maneuverings and and political outcomes, and, and we can get so afraid, and we can forget that the ultimate comfort is not in what happens in Washington, D.C. The ultimate comfort is what is happening right now on the throne of the universe, and that throne is occupied by the risen Lord Jesus, your Son. We pray that we would be a church that honors and respects governing authorities in our lives, but is never tempted to place our hope in them. Help us to worship you alone for your glory and our eternal good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.